tú me pones un, un éxito. Si, si tú no quieres hablar conmigo, dímelo para yo no llamarte ni molestarte, porque nada más quedaba tú. Real talk, real people, real stories. The He's Just Podcast. Yeah! Welcome, everyone, to another He's Just Podcast. I'm your host and founder of the He's Just a Social Worker movement, Jules Duget, with another exciting show for you. But before we get started, I want to remind everyone that this platform was built because too often we as people, we were labeled and overlooked and put in boxes. Our plight and our fight is for anyone and everyone who feels a need to be understood. We are strong as individuals, but unstoppable when we unite. Today's guest, I hold dear to my heart. I love her dearly. I've learned so much in this work with her throughout the years. Jamie Granite, she started her career at the ripe age of 19 as a special education paraeducator in Darien CT. She has worked in preschools, eighth grade for 10 years in a number of programs, self-contained, resource, co-teaching, six to eight is where she gained her experience in her field work, and she also worked and went to school at night. She started her career as a special education teacher at the elementary school in about 2010. In her first year, she went into co-teaching, which is one of her big strong suits. In this cohort, she worked in a variety of disabilities in the general education classroom, supporting 10 to 12 students. Five years later, she became a school facilitator and received her 092 in school administration. She spent her time in her career facilitating, talking, and doing, fixing IEPs, working with the community, making sure that families are well-equipped and that her teams are in compliance. She then became assistant director for a private special education school. She had about 20 students, 80 staff members that she oversaw, and there she had students range from ages 5 to 21 with severe multiple faceted disabilities. After that, two years later, she went into the supervisor role for special education and is now entering her fifth year as an administrator in special education, a person who I love dearly and I speak to so often. Welcome, Ms. Janie Granite. How are you, hon? Oh, thank you. What a nice introduction. Um, I'm doing well, and thank you. That was a good recap, and wow, I feel old now. So, you know, I've, I've definitely, I think, I, I can't do math, but I'm going into my 25th year, I believe, in the field. And yeah, I've, I've, I've done it all as far as working in every level, every position uh, that has to do with special education. And I think that's what has grown me as an administrator, because I know what it's like to be in every different piece of the puzzle. Um, and that's kind of what brings, brings me to this point and, and my work that I've been able to do with you in the last few years and with our teams and all the different people in our community and, and how we're reaching um, people elsewhere. Well, you know, tell us a little bit about the work that you're doing right now, because I didn't get an opportunity for, for those people that do know you they they clearly understand that you have wore this on your heart. Special education is special to you. But tell us a little bit about you, stuff that you're working on currently, so that everyone can get a better understanding of who Jamie Granite is. 
Yeah. So, you know, in the last two years, I've really been growing some of the programs that we're working on within uh, the district we're working on in, but I've really put a focus on literacy. I've really put a focus on dyslexia. I've really put a focus on co-teaching. I've really put a focus on teaching all students. And that's something that, you know, we've been pushing for for years. I feel like it's becoming um, more of a catchphrase of like, you know, we support all, but we've always done that. We've always been, I feel, the biggest advocates for our students and, and our families. And so I've been going through a lot of professional development myself and then trying to develop my teams um, so that they're equipped with the tools they need to teach any child that walks through our doors. And I think that's really been the crux of my work in the last couple of years. And I'm really trying to develop that into this year. Um, more, more about the inclusion model really does not matter what the disability is, does not matter what the hurdle is. We're going to figure it out. We're going to uh, call in an expert if we need it. We're going to problem solve. And that's that's really what I think my role has been is the the head problem solver of whatever it is that we need as a team. Mm -hmm. and, and before we even get into that, can you just, because what I was excited about this show was the opportunity that we will have to offer this to our listeners worldwide, New York, yes. Connecticut, Boston, whoever's listening, I want them to understand the special education process. And can you just take us through that? What is the special education process when it comes to the school level? Yeah. So, you know, it's a little bit different in every single state. I, you know, every state has their own jurisdictions on what that looks like. But if you're following federal law and, and what that looks like for families in real time, Mm -hmm. um, it's really, and this is what we consider, you know, a team includes the family and we come together and whomever has a concern about the student, whether it's the parents, whether it's the team, the teacher, the principal, um, we really come together to talk about what that student is struggling with. And then we formulate our next steps. And those next steps could be, we're going to come together and have a PPT meeting, an IEP meeting, talking about what does this child need? Do we need to evaluate? Do we need to look at different evaluations to figure out um, really the crux of the issue for the student? So it's really honestly coming together as a team and figuring out what those next steps are. And most of the time, uh, that's a really difficult step for families because they don't understand, you know, are they doing the right thing? Is this what they're supposed to be asking? Sometimes they feel like they should hire a lawyer and advocate because they think that's going to help them understand the process more. And sometimes it does, depending on, you know, who, who it is that they're working with. And, and we do work with a lot of advocates. Um, but we try to kind of make sure that families know that we are the point people, that we are going to help them no matter what. And I think that that's another thing that I've tried really hard uh, to push for in, in the schools that we work with, um, because I want families to trust us and I want families to know we are going to help them through every single step of the process. So once we go to that meeting and we decide that evaluations need to be done, it's a constant communication. What type of evaluations are being done? When are they being done? Is the family aware of what that looks like? And then after evaluations are done, we have separate meetings with the family to explain the different parts because every evaluation is full of different information. Um, so I think the parents 
uh, or family get very bombarded with just information, constant information. So it's kind of our job and our our mission to help explain those things and really break it down for families so that they understand um, that this is, it's a process, but the end result is to come up with a really awesome plan that's going to be tailored to their child, that's going to give them everything that they need to succeed in a general education classroom. You know, the one thing that that I most enjoy in doing this work with you is that we take every case separately. Um, I can talk about the back end work that wasn't mentioned because you just allowed for the process to be viewed and those that are listening are able to kind of take that in. But there are steps to this. There are things that you require that your teams do. For instance, you go into detail about having a team meeting a case study just to make sure that we are giving everything that we can as teams to understand the angle of where our students are. And many a times I can tell you, because I've been in the trenches with you, I know your dedication about the facts. And I also know how much you reference the law and to make sure that we are compliant. But what I most adore about you is that you take everyone's personalities into play, into all the schools that you do oversee, but that you also look over the possibilities that there may be something else that's underlying this issue. And there could be a family dynamic. There could be, and I love the way that you fork out your teams when these things come up because you're taking all this information in. So you know, thank you for really expressing that. And as we get into that, can you reference a bit federal law? Because there's a lot of people when they hear, you yeah. know, IEPs and federal laws. What are we what are we talking about? Right. Well, first, I'll say, you know, thank you for recognizing, um, you know, how I'm going to get the teams to do what they need to do. And, and you know, I, I'm I'm tough in that way. I definitely I push teams to not just do what's right for children, but to really push themselves as professionals, because that's something that I've learned in in this field as well, is that you have to uncover every single stone. And that's why it's so great to come together as a team, because everyone might see it in a different way. And, And then, like you said, if there's, if we're missing a piece, that's where we call in other people to help us kind of put the puzzle pieces together. Um, so, it is quite the process, but as far as, you know, federal law, you know, IDEA has, has been around and, and that kind of governs what we're doing in, in, in every state, how every child with a disability has rights. Every family has rights. Um, they all have rights to a free and appropriate public education, but in each state, it's a little bit different on how that looks. So in the state of Connecticut, you know, the parent might, write an email, have a phone call to say what the concerns are. We come together. We have something called the PPT. I know in New York, they call it more of a, an IEP meeting. Uh, it's, it's written a little bit differently. So it's, it's the way the templates are, are formed. It's the way that the process goes as far as making a referral, which is really the, the first step as we were talking about, whether that's a phone call or an email, the way that that referral um, comes down to, to the staff is different in each state and, and sort of what those, those stipulations are. 
but the end result of every state is that the child ends up with an IEP, an individualized education plan, or in some in some cases, a 504. Um, and that's really based on the way that the state recognizes the process. Um, and then there's also different evaluation timelines. Like we, you know, the federal is, is 45 days. I think, you know, where, where we are, I, I tend to go more about 30 days. So we have time to, to review and, and get families in. So it's really um, dependent on the state, but, you know, each state also has a wealth of information for families. So you can look up federal law, but I think within, you know, like in Connecticut, you can look up the Connecticut um, state education website. You can go on special education. It'll give you the parent guide, the handbook. It will tell you um, sort of those steps if you don't have a point person in the building to to talk to. But I, I do urge families to always try to connect with someone in the building that can help them because it's so much um, information, so much jargon. It's very difficult to understand if you're not living in that world every day. You know, and the one thing that we always talk about, you and I, is that let's all understand the parents, when we are talking about parents, we are referencing them as team members. They are part of our team. Just because the parent set out a request or wrote something or said, there are things that I'm concerned with, with my child, I believe he and she or they are struggling with some reading or math. Can you please understand? I want to have a meeting and so on. So these are the things that we talk about often. But I want to encourage every listener to understand that the parent is a team member. And we take pride in doing that because even when we're coming back with results, even when we're coming through with information, once we learn it, we always include the parent because I believe that they are the ones who are most responsible for the child in the um, community and the um, yeah. and I and I think we've also been in cases where we've done amazing thorough evaluations and we've come up with some weaknesses, but we don't see that educational impact. But the family does, and the family offers that lens to us where you know maybe that turns into a different plan, but we're able to say, okay, well, this is what you're struggling with. And here's how we can help you. Here's some community resources. Here's what we can do in the building. Here's what um, this plan might look like based on what you're saying. So we really do take the parent um, information and feedback very seriously. Um, and I believe that that, that helps in the long-term relationship of, of building a team for a student that requires an IEP. Well, you know, now that we're talking, th th there are some stats out here about 2019 to about 2021, the special education eligibility supposedly decreased by 1% from 7.3 to about 7.2 million. Um, I beg to differ. Can you share a little bit about what your thoughts are about that, that decrease between that time and maybe COVID? Can you let yeah. us know a little bit about that? So, I mean, obviously COVID put us in a, a strange kind of place and, and we were doing a lot. I mean, we were doing so much virtually. That's when we really started a virtual uh, platform and, and we were doing evaluations and we were, you know, trying our best to qualify students. But there were a lot of students that did not come back to school. 
uh, during COVID and at the end of COVID when we were returning back, I'd say the last two years, we've seen a huge increase. Um, so it might have been a dip for logistical reasons, but overall, there's been a huge growth in, in special education in the last few years. Um, we also have the, that COVID cohort, as we refer to, where our students now in fourth and fifth grade are, they're not reading, they're not emotionally equipped. We have really had to spend some serious time uh, considering what their needs are. And, and we do always come back to the fact that like they weren't in school, they weren't in a physical space to be learning with their peers and they missed out on a lot. So we end up looking at that and saying, you know, is there a true disability? Was there a lack of instruction? It's, it's a really kind of fine line. Um, we've also seen a huge increase in students classified with autism. We've seen that a huge spike in that in the last few years. And I'm not quite sure what that attributes to. Um, you know, but we are maybe because we are better equipped in educationally classifying students with autism as well. Yeah, you know what? And shout out to the schools and shout out to the school teachers and everyone who's out there putting this work in. Absolutely. We are a solid army all over the world and we continuously, you know, blend together and fight together. And but just to like touch on that point just a bit. You know, our newcomers, our multilingual learners, yeah. you know, they were in seventh grade. COVID happens. Now they're in high school. Right. Not only is this student missing out on appropriate learning, peer-to-peer -peer engagement and so on, they're coming from a different environment of a middle school environment into now a high school environment and right. vice versa from elementary into middle. And that transition is very, very difficult. So parents, if you do have any questions about what is happening to your child and you believe that some of this may have been, there's some connection to this, we do encourage that you reach out to your school teams, make sure that you're touching base with them so that you can get that information because there's no silly questions. You must understand that these students were actually tossed back into schools to learn at a level that they probably weren't accustomed to. And we both understand that learning virtually is totally different than learning face-to-face. -face. So, you know, about your job, what is, what is like the most challenging part about it? You always handle it with a smile, but what's so hard about your job? Oh my goodness. You, no, I'm just kidding. Um, you're not hard. You're the best. So I think, Really, my position the last five years has been, I'm almost like a liaison to everybody. I'm a liaison to the family. I'm a liaison to the building administrators. I'm a liaison to the teams, the teachers, um, city hall, the community. So, and I'm okay with that because I, I, I can handle that. But I think you do get, you get punched a few times because, you're never going to make every single party happy, but you're always trying to do what's best for the students. That's, that's the bottom line. So I think I have gotten really good in the last few years at multitasking, networking, 
really dealing with difficult cases. But I, I'd say that is the most challenging piece is just trying to be in eight different places at once and, and handle the needs of, of every person you are dealing with that is directly related to the child. You know, and this could be a connection to COVID as an administrator, you know, just ballpark. This is nationwide. Why do you think we are struggling to hire talent for special education? What do you think is happening that teachers are just leaving? Well, I think the teaching profession is is really difficult. And and I think that it's not discussed all the time. I think people know teaching is hard, but they don't really know until they get into it. And you know, we have, it's tough. You have, you have students with wide, varied ranges of of skill sets, and you're teaching really challenging curriculum. And you're dealing with social emotional concerns, you're dealing with disabilities, you're dealing with language, you're dealing with behaviors, you're dealing with administration. And I think some teachers are really burnt out. And so now, teaching is being looked at as a profession that isn't glamorous per se. And I think, you know, 20 years ago, it was like, be a teacher. Everyone wants to be a teacher. You you get the summers off. It's wonderful. You, you know, you get school and holiday breaks, but now we're looking at a real burnout rate. And I think it's just the um, challenges are becoming increasingly more difficult and also what the state comes down with on teachers as far as what the curriculum is, what the standards are, um, what our work is, you know, we're really pushing to have every teacher include every single child. That's not easy for every teacher. Not every teacher is, is built with those tools. So that's also part of our role is to step in and, and help provide those tools and help provide the guidance for maybe newer teachers or teachers who have been in the field a long time and don't have those skill sets. So I think it's just challenging all the way around. Um, so I think that's why we're having such such a difficult time bringing staff in. And then of course, in every place, there's you know budgetary concerns as well. You know, one of the things that I always hold my hat to is attendance. And this is probably the most simplest fix you know, when a student is absent and oftentimes in a year, you say a student is out 10 days with the amount of vacation time that we have, you know, parents, we have to try our best to hold our vacation times not to be held during school time. It is extremely difficult for our students to learn, but it's also very difficult for them to retain information because part of what I know is that there's about 8 million chronic absenteeism nationwide. And this number, you take into effect what we talked about earlier, a student just coming to the country, just learning the language, or still getting acclimated and just meeting an average, it becomes a lot more difficult for this student to really hang on to what's going on if they're absent. And many a times I believe that meeting with the schools on positive things like volunteering and making themselves available 
is a big plus. But to me, attendance is one of the big outliers just because how it's correlated to social and emotional learning, how it's correlated to how students express themselves. And there are many things that we feel are difficult for our learners when they're absent. Now, talk to us, because I know that you shared earlier about the IEP process. So now we have a PPT, right? It's the uh, parent-pupil-teacher meeting, and now we're together, and now we're sitting at the table. Once a student is identified, let's make believe we're at this meeting, and now the student is identified. Tell us what is going on now. So once the student is identified, we we have to go through in, Conne in Connecticut, um, there's 13 eligibility classifications. And the tricky part about that is it's an educational classification. So that doesn't mean that we're medically diagnosing somebody, you know, it could be OHI, can be autism, it can be a learning disability, it can be dyslexia, but those are educational classifications. And that means we are seeing in our evaluation results, as well as in the classroom, educational impact. We then have to determine as a team, with the parents included, what is the best classification to use? We can only use one. And we do have students that are comorbid. They probably have two or three, but we always just have to pick one. I never care as much about which category the family is comfortable with, because to me, it's more of what goes into the IEP. What are the goals and objectives? So if the student comes out severely dyslexic, I need to see that there are many objectives for reading, writing, spelling, math. I need to see a multi-sensory approach. I need to see it scaffolded. I need to see, um, you know, different trials weekly. I need to see the data collection. I need to see the progress monitoring. There are so many different pieces that as an administrator, I'm going to guide the team to put into the IEP so that that student's program then becomes lock and step to what they need in order to access the curriculum, because that is the point of any, any IEP. What are we putting into this IEP to build that student's skill set to give them access to the general education curriculum? They have you know, access all the time, but it needs to get there through the IEP. And you know, here, I'm just, I'm just thinking about in real time, yeah. some of the things that you and I often see together and we witness is about the saddest part of my job. When a parent is there or parents come in and a parent learns that their child has a classification, it becomes daunting to explain. And many a times if I'm providing translation or there's something about whatever is happening, it becomes real difficult for, for parents to accept. Yeah. My child is dyslexic. Oh, my child has autism. My And my child, you know, this is about one of the most gut-wrenching things that happens to me right. as a school leader. But what are you trying to tell parents now that are listening about this when this first news approaches them at this table many a times? So that's why it's a, it's always been important to me to have clinical meetings with the family before we get into that space, because if we are looking at a classification like autism or dyslexia, 
or an emotional disability. Those are really difficult um, for a lot of families to understand and also to not feel really sad about. So when we have those early conversations, it kind of gives the family time to process it. And it's not that we're making a determination. We say, you know, based on all of these different evaluations, here are the categories that they, they may fall into. So we don't predetermine what that is, but we give the family the information to kind of take that in. And then when we get to the table, we talk about it and the, and the team will say, you know, based on this information and what we're seeing in the classroom, this child meets this, this classification. The family could agree or disagree at that point. And that's okay because it's a healthy discussion about what everyone is comfortable with. And again, I think the, the beginning legwork is part of your relationship with your families in the building. If you have that relationship and you can call them and you can talk to them and you can go over the evaluation with them, it, it makes the meeting go a, a little bit better in, in my mind. You know, you've worked 20 something years in this business and, and, and every year you always come back to me with something new that you learned and things that you've done. But are there any stories that remain with you about a specific case or child that really tug at you when you do remember and drive you maybe to this yes. case? Can you tell us about that? Yes. Um, so I would say I've had so many over the last 20 something years, but I had a student, um, I, I say have not even had because the student and I are still in, in contact. I'm in contact with their family have been for, for 20 years. So the student, um, had down syndrome, but that down syndrome did not stop him from doing everything and anything. And he also was diagnosed with leukemia. And during that time, I had started this very early in my career, really co-teaching because he would come in and he could only be in one environment. So all day long, I changed my schedule around. I decided to keep a cohort together. I really started that co-teaching before co-teaching was a thing. Mm -hmm. And we taught him, he was involved in everything from reading to geometry to anything and everything that was going on in the classroom. I, I was modifying, I was, I was scaffolding, I was doing those things for him. And that was just kind of innate to me. I didn't learn that in a book. I didn't, you know, I wasn't taught that in grad school per se. It was just knowing that he was so cognitively with it and he was so social and he was so part of the crew. There was no reason to be taking him in and out of the classroom also when he wasn't feeling well. So then as, as time went on, um, he ended up in Boston's Children's Hospital and he was there for quite a few stays and, you know, months at a time. And he just wanted to be with the class. So my paraeducator and myself and my co-teacher, we created a Skype account. So this is before mm -hmm. all this like Zoom and we're doing all, yeah. we're already doing it. We, we created a Zoom into Boston Children's Hospital. He spent a day with his class. I would, um, after school, tutor him via Skype. And, and so we were already doing this virtual thing for him to keep him included. And I think 
that's something that I always go back to because I say to myself, if I, if I could be that creative and I could come up with that stuff so early mm-hmm. for a student that really just wanted to be included, why can't I do that with my teams in a building when I have a student with me? And, and I think, you know, you and I have, have, we've had students show up at our door that our team didn't feel equipped to help. And we, and we learned together. Here's what the student needs. Here's what we're going to do next. We would do step by step. We would have weekly meetings. As long as you are connected and you are trying to figure out what you can do next for this student, it, mm-hmm. it's going to work and the student's going to be successful. But it's about thinking outside the box. And that's hard for some people. That's hard for some some people to really wrap their head around how are they going to teach this child who isn't um, at the same level as their peers. Mm. And you know, we see this too often, but thank you for sharing that beautiful story. I know you and I have talked about that story before. And I think it's one of those things that really drives us because here on this platform, we created that for this because we want to make sure that no one is overlooked and labeled and put into some situation because they apparently cannot. And we've seen the growth in our lovely students and parents learning at the same level. So we're very happy for that. You know, sometimes parents feel encouraged and many of them have their resources to call an attorney, an advocate, whatever it is. What, what, What is that like? It doesn't bring or change the process. What does it really do? So it really, in in my mind, it really depends, right? So we work with some wonderful advocates. And the reason I I say they're wonderful is because they're helping the family understand the process. They're an additional support to the family. Sometimes the issue that occurs is when we get an advocate or attorney who comes in and they are very aggressive. They start um, blaming the team for things. They start adding things into the IEP that don't make, doesn't make sense. You know, they, they, they're not an educator. They don't understand what it's like to be in the classroom. I think that's when the situation becomes very difficult because as an administrator, I get, I get pulled in two directions. I have to protect my team because they know I'm there for them no matter what, but I also have to do what's best for the, for the student. And then also try to salvage the relationship with the family because it depends. We have families that have advocates that we work really well with. And that's not because they don't trust the the school. They love the school team. It's because they just need that additional support. But then we have parents or families who have gone out and retained an attorney or, or gotten an advocate because they feel like they can't trust the school system. So it's a balance between what type of situation it is. And just like, you know, every student is different. Every case is different, but there have been many times where I have had conversations with families and I've said, what are you doing? Like, you don't need this. You don't need this advocate. You have us. We're here for you. We're doing A, B, C, and D. And they've been like, you're right. You're Mm -hmm. right. I'm not going to work with this person anymore. Or we have a great relationship with the advocates. And like I said, if the advocate is there to really help support the family, I'm all in support for that. I love that. I think that's great. Um, it's when they're trying to put a divide through the team that I don't think that's helpful. So that's what I sort of urge families to kind of consider when they are um, looking at an advocate or an attorney. 
No, and you bring a valid point. I also get along with many attorneys and, and advocates because I'm just a people person. But in the event that something like that arises, there's always an end result. And I guess that fine line, whether we explain it one way or arrive at it at another, yeah. it is vital that we work together. You know, and then there are many cases that we've seen. Yeah. Where there's a split custody, where there's a parent who lives outside of the home, mom and dad are split. And now there's a person who is okay with the school team and maybe mom is not okay and she hires the advocate or vice versa. What are we trying to accommodate when there's a split family with this yeah. IEP process? What are we what are we trying to do? So something that I you know I learned quite a few years back and learned by default is I, you know, I was working with a family and parents were divorced. I didn't realize I was always receiving emails from mom. I was always getting phone calls from mom. I didn't realize that dad had joint custody. Mm. So after a few months, dad sent me this scathing email and you haven't included me and this and that. And I was like, oh my gosh, I'm so sorry. Like I didn't realize. And that was kind of my wake up call to be like, you know what? When, when there is some different family dynamics, you have to do your research. I need to figure out, is there joint educational decisions being made? Is there foster care? Is there DCF? Is there, we have to figure out all the different elements of that student's family profile because not everybody has a mom and a dad. Not everybody has one parent or two parents. You know, it, it could be three parents. We have to figure out what it is so that everyone feels included in that process. And it, it can be difficult. We've had some, you know, divorced families where mom and dad, they just don't get along. They, mm -hmm. they don't even want to be in the same room. And I have um, kind of gui guided conversations. I've had conversations outside of the PPT where I've brought both parents together and been like, listen, I get it. I understand. Mm -hmm. um, and I truly do understand. And I think it's really about bringing it together for what is the purpose for the child. You, you guys have to leave that kind of stuff at the door and let's figure out what we're doing next. So really trying to, again, problem solve and work with all parties involved, but also doing your research on what that child's um, dynamics are in their home. You know, once a child is found eligible, and thank you for that great answer around that, because we've also found, you know, these situations to get sticky at times are very easy to handle once we all step back and work together using that word team. You know, once once a student is found eligible and now he or she has an IEP, there's a lot of stigma. And I can speak for the Spanish families. I know that there's a miss understanding about special education classification like i don't want to be you know labeled in that way can you tell us a little bit about what that means for the student because some of these conversations we purposely don't have students join us for such reasons but think about this what are some of the issues you believe are really stopping the scenarios from moving forward once a parent is like okay i don't know what to do so, yeah, and that's a great point. We've had a lot of, um, you know, Hispanic families, Haitian families. Yeah. They, they are not um, culturally okay with any type of labels, let's say. And they, they, they think sometimes that the IEP is a hindrance. And I, what we always try to do is 
with all of our students that have an IEP. We talk about this. Special education is not a place. It's not a place you go. It's a plan of support. And whether that's a 504, an IEP, it's a, a plan developed in a SRBI with the teacher. Every plan is to support the child. So that's where we talk about that, that educational classification as not being a label. And also students that come in with an IEP can just as easily be exited from an IEP, depending on what type of progress they've made, where, where that goes. So we always try to give sort of the um, scenario to the family of what that actually means to have this document, because the document doesn't then label the child on their forehead IEP. Your, mm -hmm. your child is your child and they're coming into the general education classroom, but they have a support plan. And that means they might have a special education teacher. They might have an occupational therapist. They might have a PT. They might have a speech and language pathologist, depending on whatever the need is. So again, just trying to educate the families on what that looks like actually in a classroom. That one piece is a document, but then here's what the actual plan will look like and what a schedule might look like. Sometimes that helps families to understand. We haven't had many families that in the end don't want the, the plan, the IEP, because they realize at the end, they just want their child to succeed and, and feel good and have the support. You know, that's a dynamite answer once again. And I think that one thing that you and I always talk about is that push-in model. There are some students that do better when they're pulled because they, they, they can concentrate on a smaller group. But you and I are 21st century thinkers. We're always thinking about pushing that inclusion. Let's make sure that everyone is on equal basis. And we're not coming in to just look at our student. We're looking at the dynamics of the classroom, where the student is located, situated, how they learn best. Do they need a separate side, front seat, back seat, note seat at all? Right. So many times going into the classroom, you get exposed to specific cases. Many students are okay with that and parents as well. But you know, there are times as well that a parent says to you, remove special education or the school team says, you know what? This student yeah. is progressing nicely. Let's remove this special education, what is happening when you are removed from SPED and now things go the wrong way? What is actually going to have to take place now? Yeah. So, you know, and we have had families, that's something we should bring up as well. Is like, that's your right as a parent as well. You don't have to consent to special education services. You don't have to consent. You can't, you can consent if that's what you agree to in a PPT. If you don't consent to those services, then we can't legally provide those services for your child. Um, but when we get to that point where, let's say the student has made a ton of progress and we're ready to sort of release them into the gen ed setting without those supports, it's very gradual. We, we don't just rip the bandaid off. We try to really scaffold that and say, okay, now they can do this independently. We're going to scale it back a little bit. Maybe they have paraeducator support in the classroom. And we're going to only do that during math because they're doing so great in ELA. We're going to just do that in math and see how that goes. So again, very individualized for every student we have, depending on where they're at and, and their needs. Um, but if the parent says no more special education, I don't want my child receiving services, we then typically end up 
in an SRBI again. And we, and we start this, the whole process over again, because we also have, um, you know, we, we have to look at all of our students and say, what does this student need? So we have a responsibility to look at that and say, listen, your child's still struggling and we're going to continue to bring this up to you. We can't, we can't just dismiss it because the family isn't comfortable with the services. We'll, we'll say yes, that we're not getting it, but we're going to continue to pull them through the services through SRBI and the referral process if we believe that they still require those supports. You and I often talk about these cases. They don't let us sleep at night when we know a student is struggling, you know, and we know we need that. So we're trying to push that. You know, the one thing that I'm also thinking about is the unsung heroes of our school teams, the paraprofessionals. Love them so much. I've got great friends who are paraprofessionals and many of the parents never get a chance to meet them. Yeah. And 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 to me, that's a disservice. That's just me in general. These guys are out here putting in this work. They are taking the work and making it real. They are taking a document that's being created by a school team during one meeting. And this work is being presented to them at different levels, one-to-one, special times, push in, pull out. And if the student is here, so shout out to the paraprofessionals all over the place for sure. And you goddess being a paraprofessional in training went all the way to where you at yep. big up to you the sky's the limit you know the one the the one thing that i also want to talk about if you could share just a bit is when a student is eligible and now they're going into let's say second grade third grade fourth grade year number three what is what is happening what is this triannual process and why do we do that every three years yeah so Back to the paraprofessionals, I also want to just shout out to them because, yes, I was a paraprofessional for 10 years in my career, and I say it to our paras all the time. Mm. If I ask you to do something, it's not because I've never done it. I've done it too. Um, but I think they are an integral piece of the work that gets done every single day. And there are times where our paraprofessionals are invited to PPTs on the parents' request, and I do think that that has been a really positive experience. Mm. Um, because they can really speak to what this child is doing every day. They're with them most of the time. Yeah. Um, so as far as moving into the triennial, so what's kind of changed over the few year, last few years is the triennial date used to be every three years, you would reevaluate the student to determine if they are still eligible for special education. That is still the federal law, that is what's happening. But what I have been noticing, the trends that I've seen in the last five years, six years, has been we're really evaluating a lot more. And we're evaluating sooner than every three years. Because Mm -hmm. I think, again, our students are changing so much. And we're seeing either so much progress or we're needing to look at something different that we may even bump that triennial date up. And it's not necessarily in our mind, the school's mind, to say, are they still eligible? We, we know they're eligible, but we're looking more towards what other information do we need to make sure that this IEP is perfect and that it has everything in it that this child needs. So you know, it depends. You know, many, many a times you and I both know that it also goes for our annual uh, review, which happens annually, right? If we're looking at a student and we're meeting as a team and we're concerned about something that's ticking, 
behaviors, the learning isn't. We've held the annuals a little quicker if we need to, or come to the table quicker to make sure that the student is getting what they need. Because the, the worst case is having a student go through this process, have an IEP, and then you sit there and they haven't mastered the goals that you created, which is something that we don't do. But we want to make sure that those things are clear in every aspect that we want to highlight the need to meet often whenever possible and whenever needed to make sure that parents and students, most importantly, have what they need. Now, for our parents, Jamie, can you tell me a little bit about their rights? Because this show I kind of dedicate to them, but I want to talk to them about what what are their rights? If they're concerned, if they have questions, no matter who they are, what are you telling them? So every family has the right to bring their concerns to the school. Um, every family has the right to ask questions, to speak to any professional in the building. And I think sometimes in my experience, families have been afraid to maybe say something or ask questions because they don't want to sound silly or they don't want to want people to view them as they're being a pain. No, that's, that's wrong. If you are concerned about your child and you're saying, you know what, there is just something not right about this specific skill, you have every right to come to the building principal, uh, the special education department, um, their teacher, social worker, school psychologist, whoever you are comfortable with to bring that to the school's attention. You also have the right to request a PPT anytime you want. We, we have to always honor that. So if a family comes to us and says, I want to have a PPT because I want my student, my child to uh, be evaluated, we will always come to the table. We'll come to the table every single time because that is the law. The, every, a family has the right to call a PPT at any time. Now, one of the things that I, that I think about when you just said that was, yeah, we have all our rights to, to request, but let's be intentional and let's be correct in understanding that there's no right or wrong answer. Right. To get a school team on their heels, it's all about the students. So if you're getting people mad to get them mad, that's one thing. But if you're getting people mad to make sure that your child is getting what they deserve, then yes, please yeah. get everyone mad because I think that that's a process that needs to happen. Right. The one thing I wanted to ask, and many a times this does happen, comes to your table quite often. Maybe attorneys, maybe a parent has made up their mind. They're upset at the school. Say, I want this child to be in another school. I don't want them to no longer be a student here. And now they're talking about outplacement. Some parents don't understand what that is between changing a school and making them change locations. Can you explain right. that to us? So, yeah, that we definitely have that all the time. We have families who maybe they're not seeing as much progress as they hope to see with their child. Um, and they believe that an outplacement or another school is going to provide something better to their child. And, you know, in my career, and you know, I'm a big advocate of this, I, I'm pretty aware of every outplacement in the tri-state area. And nine out of 10 times, our schools and our programs 
are offering more and better services than some of these outplacements are. Hmm. So I really try to have a conversation with the family outside of a PPT to give them that type of information because I don't think that families are always aware. However, we also have individualized programs that could be a better fit for our students. So that's something we have to consider. And I think we always have to consider what else can we add to the IEP? What else can we put in within our district to help this child make more progress, succeed, uh, look at this child in a different lens? Because there's always an in-between. And I think that that's where we have to go before we're looking at outplacement. And I'm not saying that I'm against outplacement because there have been students that very few that I have looked at in the last few years where I've said, you know, the level of support and service they need is greater than what they can get here in the building. So there have been times where we've done that and, and that's really a conversation with the team, with the family, and then me as an administrator having to speak to uh, City Hall and sort of give them the heads up that this is how the team feels and this is where we're moving with it. Um, and then be be able to guide the family through that process as well, where you're going to have to go look at outplacements, you're going to have to put in referral packets, you're going to have to, it's, it, it can turn into a, another process, basically, but again, dependent on the student. So every student is, is different. Um, and I think parents need to know, you have all the rights in the world, but you can't just call up a team and say, well, I, I want my child outplaced. It doesn't mm-hmm. work like that either. So again, it, it just, it, you have to have a discussion. We have to think about what is the student doing? What is the student not doing? Is there something else that we can add into support? Is there somebody from the outside we can bring in? There's always different ways to keep the child in their least restrictive environment, which is what we always try to do. Their least restrictive environment is their, their home-based school. You know, Jamie, thinking about this as well, many parents throughout the year, you know, they get divorced, they change addresses and things happen. We want to encourage parents to make sure that they, if they leave, let's say, Connecticut to move to New York or vice versa, each state has IEPs. Each state has these programs in place. We want to make sure that once you do decide to move, if it's a safe move and you know where you're going to plan and this new school that your child will enroll, make sure that the new special education team connects with your old team, sign those consents off so that your child isn't, you know, having any gaps in their learning or struggling when it comes to those points. Because I think that that's another thing that we've seen through the, through the years, changing the IEP, still same format. We take the template. Yeah. Make the IEP become ours. So that's something that I think is also important for our parents who are thinking about moving or changing location throughout the school right. year. You know, Jamie, I've never asked you this. What would you have been had you not been in the career that you are? Was there another type of job that you would have held? Oh, my goodness. I, You know, I was always really into art, uh, art, performing arts. Uh, fashion into those those types of things, but I really fell into the educational career at 19, and I feel like education chose me. I don't really feel like I chose education, and I just think that it was a plan already laid out for me by just 
default where I ended up, who I started working with. I realized, wow, like I, I really can do this. And I, I love these kids and I love working with them. I love pushing hard and figuring it out. And I think that's just really what has driven me all these years to stay in this field. And one of the best in the business for sure. The only thing is that you don't want to use your Spanish. It's very limited, very not good looking, but I always make you practice. Jamie, the floor is yours, friend. I want you to just tell our listeners what what should they remember about you, about this process, about their children if they're struggling. Tell us something, friend. So I think our conversation has just sort of led me to this place of I don't want families to ever feel um, intimidated or silly to go to a special education administrator or building leader and express your concerns because we want to hear your voice. And if you feel like your voice is not being heard, then you really need to um, figure out a professional that's going to listen to you and help you through the process. I know I have made it my business uh, for a long time to really be there for families. And, and that is the purpose of my work. And I am driven by students and their success. Um, I'm lucky to have an office in one of my buildings and have connection with students and just see how much growth they make. So I get to see that end result of the hard work that the teams are putting in. And I just want families to understand that we are your children's biggest advocates, and we always will be. We, you may not see us all the time or understand our roles, but trust me, we are doing everything behind the scenes to make sure that your child has everything. Well, Jamie, I'm going to say a good five years ago when I got a chance to meet you, love at first sight. I think that you touched my life in so many different ways, and I can't tell you as a professional, as a learner, as a friend, I'm really touched to, to, to really understand that everything that you have just said, you mean from the heart because you never have minced your words. You're tough as nails, but you're also very gentle in so many ways. And I think that I want people to know that, that when you're thinking about your own kids, you gotta somehow trust the process like Jamie said. There are gonna be opportunities that you're gonna have to raise your voice and fight and fight you must. Because just like us, this platform was built because too often we were overlooked. We were labeled and put in boxes. So parents, you put up that fight. You stick up for your children. You go out there and advocate for them, like Jamie said. Because anyone and everyone who feels a need to be understood will and should be heard. We are strong as individuals, but unstoppable when we unite. Tune in, friends, for the next He's Just a Social Worker show, coming real soon to a town near you. We out. Please note that the views expressed here are my own and not a representation of my employers and clients. Thank you for listening. We're always here for you. Just message us and we'll get back to you within 24 hours. Thank you. More than just at He's Just a Social Worker.